Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dolwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're discussing Michael Shea's 1987 tale of Lovecraftian horror, Fat Face. But before we get into all that horrific stuff, what is going on? Matt has just finished converting issue three of the Blasphemous Tome to PDF format. This, of course, is the fanzine we produce for all our Patreon backers. We've been going through converting some of the old issues, which we did as print-only publications back in the day, to electronic formats so that our Patreon backers can download them. And for a limited period, if you back us before the end of February, you also get a voucher, which allows you to order a print-on-demand copy free of charge, barring postage, from DriveThruRPG. You need to be backing us at the $3 level or higher to get that reward. Take a look at our Patreon site. There's a link in the show notes for more details. This issue, of course, includes a Call of Cthulhu scenario, or to be more precise, it includes a Pulp Cthulhu scenario written by myself called A New Age of Wonders, which takes place at a swanky New Year's Eve party in Vermont hosted by Cicero Mordant, a notoriously self-aggrandizing inventor. This being Cthulhu, everything goes horribly wrong and there's lots of bloodshed. If you want to hear how this plays out, I did actually run it a little while ago for our good friends at Pretending to Be People. You can either check out their podcast feed and find it there, or I'll put a link in the show notes. And now on to our main topic, Fat Face. Most of our episodes on weird fiction are focused on the early days of the genre. The Cthulhu mythos has been around for almost 100 years at this point. Well, how time flies. And has been in active development throughout that time. This episode, we thought we'd delve into a writer who was influential in reinventing their mythos in the late 20th century, but perhaps isn't that well known. We should issue some content warnings at this point. The protagonist of this story is a sex worker in 1980s Los Angeles. While the story isn't sexually explicit, it does include some elements related to sex work that may not be for all readers. This includes violence against women, drug use, and an oblique depiction of sexual violence. There's also some cruelty to animals. So yeah, this thing touches a few buttons. One or two. I mean, the thing I don't understand is, I buy most of my clothes from Fat Face and nobody was selling <laughs> clothes. Yes, I did quickly Google that because obviously, as you touched upon, there's a clothing line called Fat Face. I'd like to think there's a connection. There isn't. Sadly, even though they came out about the same time, the clothing store started a year after this story was first published. But uh, yeah, there's no connection. The clothing line apparently is named for a ski slope, which is disappointing. <sighs> so there's a ski slope called Fat Face. There is. Apparently, that's what the French name translates to. But what's the ski slope named after? Yes. But let's leave it there and move on. Let's leave that question hanging, because I'm sure it's named after Michael Shea's story. 
So who is Michael Shea? I hear you ask. Shea's work jumps between a variety of genres. He started writing with his novel A Quest for Symbolists, or at least that was his first published work, which was an authorised sequel to Jack Vance's Dying Earth series in 1974. Over the following decades, he published numerous science fiction, fantasy and horror stories, often blending the genres. One of his stories, The Autopsy, was recently adapted for an episode of Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities. Who'd have thunk it? <laughs> we might be talking about that in a previous episode. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I watched a little interview on YouTube with Shay where he was talking about his views on genre. And it's interesting. I mean, we discussed this before in the context of weird fiction about how weird fiction blends genres or what we identify as genres these days. And Shea was very big on that. He wrote some stuff that he considered to be, I guess, primarily science fiction, but he figured that in order to make it the kind of science fiction that he liked, he always had to blend elements of what he considered to be the fantastic and horror in there. And so you generally find with all of his stories that there's at least some horror in there, and they're quite often very difficult to pin down by genre. I think some a lot of the times they make the best stories anyway, rather than mm. they're, they're not neatly pigeonholed into one or the other. For most of his career, Shea was best known for sword and sorcery. Oh well, no one's perfect. Specifically, his cycle of stories about Nift the Lean. These were collected into four volumes, now sadly out of print. Why do I have the feeling that Scott has all of them? I do, yeah. <laughs> hey! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these are weird uh, sword and sorcery stories. Like a lot of sword and sorcery, these weren't written as novels, but they were edited together into kind of novel format out of shorter stories. And I guess there's elements of uh, Fritz Lieber in there, uh, certainly elements of Jack Vance, but perhaps a lot more mythology in there and a lot more horror they're really good stuff, and I really hope that with the renewal of interest that's come about with Shay's story being in Cabinet of Curiosities and the printing of Mr. Kennyharm, then maybe someone will bring these back into print, because they go for stupid amounts of money online. Much of Shay's horror writing involved the Cthulhu mythos. His short mythos fiction has been collected a few times, but the recent Demiurge collection from Dark Regions Press is the most complete. It is a nice little collection. That's the one that I picked up for this. Mm. Yeah, it's an attractive book, and I think it's got all his short mythos fiction in there. It doesn't have some of the more borderline stuff, or at least some of his horror fiction that doesn't quite fit into the mythos, like The Autopsy. But there was another collection that was reprinted recently, I think called The Autopsy and Others, that has that in it. Oh, I picked up a, uh, a reading copy off eBay, The Best Fantasy and Horror, Volume 1, Demons and Dreams, edited by Ellen Datlow and Terry Windling from, uh, when is it, 2010, something like that? I thought it was the 80s. Oh, no, some of the stories are from the 80s. And it, it kind of caught my eye because it, it got stories by a whole uh, bunch of other people, including Ursula Le Guin, Jonathan Carroll, 
uh, Ramsey mm. Campbell. So a bunch of names that I recognise and a whole bunch that I don't. I mean, there's loads of short stories in this book. So uh, oh, nice. I thought for four quid, that's going to be a bargain. It's not in a great state, but never mind. Out of interest, what's the Jonathan Carroll story in there? Friend's best man. Oh, very cool. Fat Face has been collected countless times. I think it was in Cthulhu 2000 as well, and it's mm. been in all sorts of anthologies and collections. But it was originally published as a chapbook back in 1987. I think I may even have that somewhere. I'm pretty sure that that was my first exposure to it, that I picked it up at the old book in, in London. And I'm going to have to check my shelves and see whether I still have that. Probably hidden away three rows deep in uh, one obscure corner of the library. Yeah, yes, definitely. Shay's mythos fiction tended to mix concepts taken directly from Lovecraft with more transgressive elements of sex, drugs, I thought he was going to say and rock and roll, but it says violence <laughs> instead, that make them feel very different from Lovecraft. His stories also tended to be character studies in a way Lovecraft's never were. Yeah, these actually did feel like characters rather than just ciphers mm -hmm. or or mannequins going through the motions. Yeah, and I think that's the case in pretty much all his mythos fiction, certainly all the mythos fiction that I've read, that he is far more interested in people than he is in necessarily the horrors, or at least making these people feel real. Whereas with Lovecraft, it was always just, yeah, here is a cipher that is going to go through all this, witness the horror, so that I've got a vehicle for conveying it to the reader. So, yeah, it makes his stories feel very, very different. Shay also wrote two mythos novels. The Colour Out of Time is a sequel to The Colour Out of Space, following the story's repercussions in the 1980s. And Mr. Cunningham, his loose sequel to Lovecraft's The Hound, was published posthumously in 2021. And sadly, Michael Shea died in 2014 at the age of 67. Now let's move on and have a look at the story of Fatface. Well, Fatface takes place in 1980s Los Angeles. The protagonist, Patty, is a sex worker operating out of the Parnassus Hotel in what the story describes as the porno heartland of Hollywood. She has recently started working again after a stay at a psychiatric hospital. She was recovering from trauma after witnessing her former pimp robbing and murdering a customer, and she's been haunted ever since then by the image of the victim's head torn apart by bullets. It is quite a grim note to open up the story with. Mm. Yeah, and it was one where the first time I read through it, I was wondering what that bit was doing in there, because it doesn't directly relate to the rest of the plot. But when I was going back over it, I you know, sort of clicked how it really sort of fits with the greater themes of the story and sets up a lot of the motifs that go through as well. Yeah, I think it kind of sets the scene as well, doesn't it? It gives you the feel for, you know, this story. It's like an opening shot of a film. It sort of sets your expectation. Mm -hmm. But it also sets up that theme of predation, which is yeah. key to the, the story, that her pimp is this predator pretending to be something that he's not, preying upon the innocent. And yes, then, having just got out from under him, Patty finds herself another predator. Mm. 
There's also something that I thought was quite nice, just even if it was a very small, not quite blink and you miss it, but just small little trick that was employed at the very start, that when it describes Patty walking into the hotel and how all the uh, the other workers reacted to her there, uh, like the hotel staff, mm. it was almost set up making me think, oh, she's got a job working at the hotel. She's She's going to be mm. a member of staff, maybe on the front desk, maybe as a receptionist. No, no, she's just a sex worker that goes there and uh, applies her trade. It was a nice, almost like little subtle bait and switch that I had to go back and reread it and think, hang on, is this exactly what I thought I just read? I think it's kind of making the point there, it's just another job. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. And I think this is one thing that Shay really nails in this, in that for all the seediness that he portrays of Hollywood life at the time, there's no moral judgment or condemnation. He just portrays Patty's work as something that she does. And it doesn't feel salacious. It doesn't feel, as I said, there's no condemnation there. It's just very matter of fact, which I think works beautifully. And is, I think, comparatively unusual for when it was written in 1987. I mean, it's an attitude we might see more now, but I don't know. I feel surprisingly contemporary in that respect. Mm-hmm. We see the local community through Patty's eyes, the woman she works alongside, the teenage counterclerks at the donut shop, who leer whenever she makes small talk, and Arnold, the strange and repellent newsstand vendor who speaks to her in all too lively and gurgling manner. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, Arnold's an interesting character, and I think we'll get into him a bit more later. I wasn't quite sure what to make of him at first, but I mm. have ideas now. The main person of interest to Patty, however, is the man, her friends call Fatface, who they consider their friendliest neighbour. He works on the fourth floor of the office building opposite the Parnassus, an old structure with a Mesopotamian theme. Yeah, we get this uh, this guy who's kind of, you know, looks out down at them and uh, they think he's kind of curious and maybe a little bit charming. I don't know. They're kind of, they're, they're intrigued by him. He... He doesn't seem quite part of their world. Yeah, he, he comes across as good-humoured, always smiling down at them. And yeah, they consider him to be avuncular. Patty and her friends are fascinated and amused by the combination of businesses that Fatface runs. The two operations are listed in the building directory as hydrotherapy clinic and pet refuge. The women are particularly amused by the way that the clients for the two services seem to arrive together. The hydrotherapy patients were a waddling, pachydermous lot, gimping on bulky orthopaedic boots, their wobbly bulks rippling in roomy jumpsuits or bib overalls. And as if these hulks required an added touch, they sometimes came with cats and dogs in tow. These beasts' wails and struggles against their leashes or carrying cages made it plain that they were strays, not pets. The misshapen captors' fleshy, stolid faces, as if oblivious to the thrashings of the beasts, added that last note of slapstick to the spectacle. Fatface himself has a bold, ruddy, avuncular countenance the women often see beaming down from his office window. While the other women invent crude scenarios involving Fatface and his clients in watery orgies, Patty imagines Fatface as a more tragic, sympathetic figure. She fantasises about visiting his office and offering her services. I mean, she thinks he'll be, like, really appreciative of her services. And I guess she's not wrong. Hmm. 
not in the way she expects. <laughs> but I do like this development of Patty as a character that she just from the outset here is a fairly complex character that she's obviously been through some serious shit. She spent time in a psychiatric hospital after witnessing that murder. She seems to be hardened to a lot of the aspects of her working life. But at the same time, there's there's almost childlike innocence about her, the way that she sees the best in everyone, the, the way that she remains almost relentlessly upbeat uh, I mean, not always. Depression takes her from time to time throughout the story. But, yeah, as far as characters go, this is very much not a one-note character. After a few drinks, Sherry, one of Patty's friends, agrees to go along with her. The building is deserted and feels oddly alien to Patty. Her good spirits depart and she finds herself afraid to be there. Yeah, this is this is almost like an instinctual afraid. There's mm. something that just suddenly clicks in her that says, this place is wrong, get the hell out of here, which was yeah. a very sudden change in her demeanour. Yeah, I mean, there are all sorts of little mentions of things in passing. There's a throwaway reference to, for example, a rubber mat looking like reptilian skin and things like that. And it's just this accumulation of small details that you can imagine creeping her out steadily. The sounds Patty hears from behind the hydrotherapy clinic doors are echoes resonating in a vast and cavernous space and the distant piping of a flute. Meanwhile, Sherry scrawls a note and slips it under Fatface's office door. The two women run out of the building and Patty finds herself giggling like a schoolgirl, pulling a prank. Yes, um, you know, when you hear the phrase distant piping of a flute, <laughs> you know, when it, with reference to Lovecraft, it's never good, is it? No, 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 no. <laughs> Sand losses are coming. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm... What is it that Lovecraft had against flutes? We brought this up during Dream Quest of Unknown to mm. Death as well. But any time he mentions flutes is never in a wholesome way. He clearly had some traumatic childhood incident that involved a flute. This one time at band camp. <laughs> <laughs> Despite this good humour, Sherry is spooked as well. The building made her feel like she was under the ocean. As the two women discuss this, they encounter Arnold, the news vendor, who has a babyish fatness and redness about every part of him. Patty feels that there is something sly and corrupt about the man. He hands Patty an envelope and a $50 note, saying that a man said to read this. So there's a couple of things here. I mean, first of all, that feeling that Sherry got about being under the ocean, this is a theme that we get running through this story, all this sort of benthic imagery. And these little, again, subconscious cues that the characters seem to be picking up on. Mm. If there is one constant theme to this story, it's characters getting bombarded with warnings that for whatever reason they shrug off or ignore. Whether this is people telling them stuff, whether this is just them picking up subconsciously or even consciously things about their surroundings. I guess it's something we all do to some extent, but there were times where I found myself wanting to reach into the page and shake Patty. Just <laughs> like, oh, no, pay attention, pay attention. 
there's a few instances this, this is skipping a little forward to almost towards the end where there are so many signposts of you're gonna die if you don't get out of here here's one way you could get mm. out here's another way you could get out here's yes. a third way you could get out and it's just all <laughs> these opportunities that she misses mm. all the way through to her doom it's crazy well i think those things that they're picking up on i don't think they're picking up on them so much as mm. they're being portrayed as picking up on them so that we the reader pick up on them so yeah so we the reader are hyper aware of them they themselves this feeling of being under the sea is just a kind of a, a passing thing to them they don't really act on it's just it's just a way of conveying to us that something ominous is uh taking place i think yeah, and, and fundamentally, I mean, this is classic dramatic irony. This is the reader knowing stuff that the characters don't know. And I think we've had this discussion before, particularly you and me, Matt, where characters in horror stories shouldn't know that they're in a horror story. And mm -hmm. if they react like they are, then that's probably going to stop it being a good horror story. I don't know. Cabin in the Woods is almost a good example of where that is subverted. It's not a horror story, though, is it? Yeah, I mean, that's a very <laughs> deliberate parody of, of horror stories. If every horror story had characters in them who knew they were in horror stories, horror fiction would not work. <laughs> so I'm still tempted to make this uh, a subject for a piece at some point. <laughs> the two women retreat to the hotel bar and read the note over drinks. I think one of them states, well, this was the easiest 50 bucks I ever got. <laughs> mm. It's written in an elegant script asking, how does a Shoggoth lord go wooing? The note continues mixing poetry and prose, hinting at the origins of Shoggoths from caverned ocean black as night. There are further hints about the author's nature and abilities. You cannot imagine the Shoggoth lord's mastery of shapes. His race has bred smaller since modern man last met with it. The tone of the text is an unsettling mixture of flirtation and threat, suggesting that the author means to devour Patty. Ha! Huh. Madness. <laughs> well, you can't say they don't disguise their intentions. <laughs> <laughs> My scalding flesh will be your gown, and agony your bridal song. You shall both be my bread, and, senses reeling, watch me fed. Nom, nom, nom. This whole note is really quite creepy. That mixture of playfulness and, yeah, flirtation with some really quite unsettling imagery. If you got this as a handout in a game, I think it would have an impact. I was taken with the rhyme of eyes with blasphemies, as in <laughs> blasphemies. <laughs> I'm not going to blame Shay for that. That's more, uh, you know, that's uh, that's fat face. Maybe Shoggoths learnt their English before the Great Vowel Shift, and they had the same kind of weird rhyming schemes that you find in Shakespeare. Clearly. Patty is more depressed by the note than frightened. She's dealt with sadists messing with her before. Sherry, on the other hand, is freaked out. Yeah, no shit. The two women decide to have a sleepover at Patty's apartment to try and improve their spirits. They stock up on booze and snacks, talking late into the night. And this does feel quite a real moment. This is yeah. what would happen if some people actually did get a note like that? What would they do? Yeah, we're going to go get drunk and have a sleepover. Yeah. 
Yeah, and try to lift their spirits by doing things like making prank phone calls to people with funny-sounding names in the phone book. Calling up Moe's Bar saying, hey, is my crotch there? (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, that again goes back to the idea that there's something really quite childlike about, well, both Patty and Sherry in a lot of ways. We're told, I think, at some point that Patty's been doing this for a few years, but... I guess they are both very young. The women's moods are greatly improved by morning. Their plans to take the day off are interrupted by Sherry's pimp, however, who calls her away for a lucrative job. Left on her own, Patty's mood crumbles. She wanders through Hollywood, dwelling on the strange note. The impulse arises to jump on the next Greyhound bus and start a new life in another city. This all seems like too much effort, however, and Patty resigns herself to staying. She's probably watched Midnight Cowboy one too many times. (laughs) As if you could. (laughs) Yes, it is a great film. I still haven't got past the credits on that. It's just one film that whenever it's come on, it's like been really late night TV in its case of I've started it and gone, nah, I'm just too tired for this and gone to bed. (laughs) That sounds like the best time to watch it, you know. Well, it's called Midnight Cowboy, so I mean, late night is kind of appropriate. I remember Midnight Cowboy played a significant role in a criminal trial in Hong Kong when I was a kid. I remember it being on (laughs) the news. There was someone who was accused of, I think he was a rapist, and he'd given his alibi as he couldn't have possibly been the the culprit because he'd been at the cinema when the attack had taken place. And so the prosecution on the stand asked him, well, what film did you go and see? And he said, oh, I went to see Midnight Cowboy. And the prosecutor said, oh, well, tell us about the film then. He said, oh, well, it's just some Western. And yeah, they convicted him. <laughs> Although I had thinking of references to true crime one that actually relates directly to the story one of the things that i've been watching a fair amount of recently that i mentioned in passing in a previous episode is lots of simon whistler's youtube channels mm. and one amongst them is the casual criminalist where he looks at true crime stories and i think there's a throwaway veiled reference to a true crime incident in this story later on where I think it's Patty's thinking over some of the things that are hidden away in the background in LA or California in general, where she talks about that there's mass graves being dug up in the back garden of otherwise unassuming normal houses, which I think is a throwaway reference to Dorothea Puente, because she was active in um, Sacramento in California. It must have been around this time when she was discovered. don't think I'm familiar with the case. The very quick version of it, I mean, Puente had quite a sordid history. She looked older than she was, so she kind of adopted this kind of uh, mother hen persona and took in a lot of homeless people from off the streets. And they would cash their social security checks that they basically made out to the house. And what she was effectively doing was getting those checks rolling in, murdering them and burying them in the back garden. So she literally had a mass grave out in her back garden. Oh, boy. All these checks just kept rolling in. Oh. That was how she was basically funding her, her lifestyle. Wow. It was just timely thinking of California in the time period. I thought it was a veiled reference to that which may have been contemporary when the time of the story was written and being set. Quite possibly. Patty encounters a van from the pet refuge parked on the road. 
A man she recognises as working for Fatface is dragging a German shepherd into the van, and boy, is he being pretty harsh about it in the process. Mm. Oh, yeah. The man is tall, round, and smooth, with a face of his employer's type, though not as jovial. He seems to have a club foot, and his body shape is strange enough that Patty is glad his overalls conceal it. This guy just reeks wrong in how he's described. The man throttles the dog as Patty watches, his eyes rolling up into his head, and they seem to turn black. And she suddenly feels very vulnerable, especially when he smiles at her, and she can feel his foul and oddly cold breath gusting against her face. That's a, a detail we come back to a few times, that foul and oddly cold breath. That's, yeah, that's genuinely creepy. Luckily, however, Patty spots a cab before the situation can escalate further and jumps into it. Patty tells the cab driver to take her to the Greyhound station. Then she changes her mind, deciding she should report the man's menacing behaviour to Fatface. By the time she arrives at the Parnassus, however... She has talked herself out of this too. Instead, she has some donuts and cocaine. You can't go wrong with that. And heads to the cinema to lose herself in cheesy movies and peppermint schnapps. Donuts, cocaine, cheesy movies and peppermint schnapps. I mean, that does sound like the perfect afternoon, doesn't it? Donuts. (laughs) (sighs) When this fails to raise Patty's mood, though, she calls Sherry. But Sherry is too tired to hang out. Patty heads to a bar instead and gets drunk. Kind of a running theme, really. Mm. Hours later, she staggers through Hollywood and decides to visit Sherry anyway, because when you're drunk, you're just going to wake up your friend who's tired and has gone to bed early. Real friendly activity there. Yeah. We get little hints that Patty is perhaps a bit pissed off at being shunned this way and and the alcohol has brought out her rimpish side. and, And again, I mean, this goes back to the idea of her not being much more than a kid. Also, it's the 80s. People would call round on each other on Friends without yeah. texting and messaging and waiting outside the door and messaging us out. <laughs> I'm outside your door. Do you want to come out and see me? Can I knock on the door? No, they just like knock on the door or just like climb their friend's garage roof and go in through the bedroom window. Oh, I don't know who did that, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't miss those days at all. Oh, I do. Big time. <laughs> Deciding to prank Sherry, Patty creeps up to her bedroom window and peeks in through the screen and the blinds which are partially down. There in the gloom, she can just about make out her friend in bed with what Patty assumes is a client in the midst of some kind of sexual act. She decides not to interrupt them, although she is somewhat troubled by a foul smell and the strange sound of music coming from the window. I like the passing comment here that uh, she'd been paid to watch far worse things. (laughs) Yeah, what was it? Far worse than mere couplings. Mm. Once she decides Sherry must be done with the customer, Patty rings the bell. When there's no answer, she lets herself in. There's no sound inside, but uh, a carrion stench still hangs in the air. Weak need, Patty enters the bedroom. This is a really fucking creepy scene. Oh, hell yeah. Mm. 
This goes on for a few pages. I've condensed it quite a lot here in the summary. But Shay really brings out the atmosphere and the sense of dread here. It's a wonderful bit of writing. And also the grounded reality of it, things like just mm-hmm. how he describes that there's all this detritus that's kind of littered around the sofa, which is painting a picture that she just lounges around and throws stuff on the floor. And it feels very, mm. again, just very real and very normal. Mm. Yeah. In the gloom, she sees the sheets drenched in some viscous fluid. Sherry is lying under the bed. When Patty pulls her out, she finds that most of her friend's body has been eaten away, her torso now just ending in a charred stump at a ribcage. And this is absolutely brutal, how she's Mm. pictured sitting there wailing and crying, just holding on to this thing, holding on to her friend. But at the same time, this very thing is making her scream and is terrified. It's fucking brilliant how it's written. It is really, really good. Mm. I mean, if we're talking about this in game terms, you can just feel the sand loss there. I mean, that is a major sand loss. And we see immediately the repercussions of that. And she's seen dead bodies before. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that whole thing about, well, you've seen dead bodies before, you wouldn't need to lose any sanity. But this one's your friend. It's not only her friend, but she's died in a not only brutal and viscerally nasty manner, but in a, a weird manner as well. Yeah, pretty inexplicable. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just everything about this is just set up for sand loss. So sure enough... Patty finds herself back at the psychiatric hospital, but it's a relatively short stay there. Eventually, she's she's released, heavily medicated, and heads back to the Parnassus. It's a holiday weekend when she gets there, and the area around the hotel is unusually quiet. However, Patty's mood is buoyed when she sees the smiling face of Fat Face looking down from his office window, just beaming at her. With a little wave as well. I like that almost childlike little, hello girl, is how he's pictured looking down at her. Don't play with your food. Joining her friends at the hotel bar, Patty spends the evening drinking and downing Valium. As the bar empties, she digs out a paperback she found at the hospital. At the Mountains of Madness! (laughs) That's reassuring, a reassuring read. (laughs) <laughs> While she struggles with prose, she is intrigued by the references to Shoggoths, all of which seem to have been underlined. Actually, was it one that she found at the hospital, or is it one that further outside Arnold mm. slipped to her? Oh, you may be yeah. right. Yeah, sorry, I may have misremembered that bit. I think so. What do you think about like having At the Mountains of Madness in the story you know as a fictional work in a fictional work particularly as it's this is a a mythos related story to have like at the mountains of madness in there this was the one thing in the story that i didn't like Mm. Mm. this kind of really took me out and it removed me from it being yeah hang on this is kind of metafictional and yet it just was a complete disconnect with every bit of atmosphere everything that the story had really done well up until that point to suddenly have oh this is a story that's from the real world appearing in the fiction making the mythos just a fictional construct within that world no no this this doesn't work not for me anyway because it didn't really seem to add anything to this story to me having that in there i could have done without it so it kind of stood out and i'd have been just as happy without it there yeah i I can sort of see why shay did it if there were people 
who were reading the story who hadn't read at the Mountains of Madness and perhaps needed a bit more context, but there would have been much better ways of doing that. It seemed to be a very ham-fisted way. But on the other hand, Shea is far from the only mythos writer to do this. It's quite a common thing for people to do oh, in sure. their fiction. And it very rarely works for me. I, I think the worst examples that we've seen in some of the stories we've discussed earlier were some of August Ehrlich's ones where he made references mm. to Lovecraft's fiction existing within his fictional world and being referenced by mythos scholars. The only time I've seen it really work to my satisfaction was in Robert Bloch's novel Strange Eons, which takes place in a world where, yeah, Lovecraft was a writer and he wrote all this stuff. And yeah, he uses that old conceit of, well, he was really secretly trying to warn us about what is going on beneath the surface of the world. But Block takes it to logical extremes or illogical extremes, or at least interesting extremes. And it's not just a throwaway thing in the story, it's the entire basis of the story. And it ends up in some really quite interesting places. Uh, so, yeah, that's the one time I've been happy with it. But, yeah, not here. Not here at all. I'd say the best use of At the Mountains of Madness in another fiction, work of fiction is in Beyond the Mountains of Madness mm. when it's used as a handout. Yeah, there is that. <laughs> yeah, here's your homework. <laughs> <laughs> There's In the Mouth of Madness as well, which takes direct quotes from the likes of The Whisper in Darkness, but doesn't attribute them as being from the story. It says, mm. quite tongue-in-cheek, this thing reads like a guidebook. <laughs> <laughs> Even the fat face story opens with a quote from At the Mountains of Madness and attributes it as such. Mm. So it does seem very ham-fisted mm. in how it's thrown in here. But going back to Arnold, because if Arnold was the source of this book, and obviously he was the one who handed that note over from the man who wanted the woman to read it and his strange appearance and so on, I was trying to really work out what Arnold was in this story. I mean, he he's described in, I think, an initially quite a misleading way that he's got a bit of a, a chubby countenance to him and his hair looks sparse. But it then becomes apparent that perhaps some of that... Some of the strangeness with his skin is more burns, and he's missing an eye and stuff like that. I was left wondering whether he was kind of the Renfield to Fat Faces Dracula, mm. that he was like a cultist, a human agent in the service of the Shoggoth Lords. That's definitely the kind of interpretation I got from it. The other way that kind of bounced around in my head, a little less than the Renfield analogy, was that he might have been another Shoggoth Lord himself and that he's almost helping to prime the people that go up there eventually by helping sow those little seeds of fear that help to uh, give them a better taste, as he puts it later. Yeah, except the next time we see him, and I'll touch on this when we get to it, he actively seems to be warning Patty away. And so it's almost like he's just for a moment rediscovered his humanity and is trying to act against his Shoggoth Lord Masters. That night, sleeping at the hotel, Patty dreams of a city stranger than Hollywood, where huge clots of boiling substance stalk the streets. Waking, she sees Fatface watching her from his office window. She decides spontaneously to visit him. 
again, there's a lovely little image here of she kind of just walks out onto the balcony, not wearing anything else other than her bra, pretty much. And the the reaction on Fat Face's uh, Fat Face's face because says volumes here. Yeah, I think she mistakes it for flirtation, and mm-hmm. well, arriving at the office building. Patty also sees some of the patients turning up, each one of them carrying a stray animal. Not wanting to interrupt this, she waits outside, and while she does so, some friends drive up. They invite her to a party, and while she is tempted, she tragically, perhaps, declines. Fatality. Arnold accosts Patty, seemingly warning her about something. Looking at him, Patty flashes back to the word Shoggoth fleeing inside to the safety of Fat Face's office. Fat Face is waiting for her, sitting behind his desk, even more corpulent than Patty expected. He wears a doctor's coat and orthopaedic shoes, greeting her in a piping voice. Again, warning bells going off all the way here when you hear piping. <laughs> Fat Face says how happy Patty has made him. Despite his bulk, he springs cat-like from his seat and leads Patty to the clinic. It's the little touch that we get all the way through here of all the orthopaedic shoes and braces and stuff that these strange people are wearing, that they're the kinds of medical devices that you do see sometimes and you can rationalise them. But I guess if you were in a situation where you just encountered everyone wearing braces and orthopaedic shoes and strange garments that seem to have medical purposes, the overall effect would be really quite unsettling. Inside the clinic, Patty hears churning water and the cries of animals in pain and distress. Not hospital sounds, she thinks to herself, which I think is a wonderful bit of understatement. (laughs) Maybe I've just been going to the wrong hospitals. Fat Face follows her, undressing as he goes, telling her, Soon we'll all dine on flesh men and women, not poultry vermin. That was quite a sad, real passage there, where it's she finally has this understanding that these animals are in such pain and distress. It, it was quite, quite sad, really. That's definitely the, the animal content warning part of this, apart from the incident with the dog earlier. It's the whole context. I mean, it's everything here. This is, I mean, this story has gone from 20 MPH to 100 within the space of a few paragraphs. Batty has gone from being in this generally creepy situation where there are lots of little warning signs to suddenly there are klaxons going off all around her saying this is dangerous this is wrong everything is fucked up and it seems to have almost a paralyzing effect on her and that again actually seems quite real to me it's the kind of horror story where you can just look at it and perhaps say well if i were in that situation i'd just run away and I don't know. I can really believe her just under this assault of the senses and weirdness and just trying to make sense of the whole thing, just being absolutely lost in it all. Patty can now see that Fatface wears a complex rubber suit under his outer clothing, covered with straps and buckles. The clinic before her is not the chlorinated blue pools she expected, but a slime black grotto surrounded by cyclopean stones. 
the sooty, viscous broth of its waters boil with bulging elephantine shapes. Mm. Yeah. These shapes are largely formless protoplasm, but a human head extrudes from each. Terrified animals fall from cages overhead into the roiling water and are devoured. And as if all this weren't fucked up enough, Fatface then exhorts Patty to really understand what she's seeing. This isn't him trying to hide his master plan from her, or it's not even any great moment of revelation. This is him rejoicing, relishing in her fear. And he explains that her horror will improve the tang of her blood. As he does so, he pulls the last of his buckles loose, and purple protoplasm tumbles out into a tub. Only his human head remains poking out of this mass. It is easier just to imitate the head, he explains. There's a beautiful little moment here as well, which uh, I think we didn't mention at the time, but when she was back at the hotel, there was a fly that was banging up against the window. Mm. which uh, she just carelessly swats the thing because it's kind of annoying her batting against the window, even though the fly is described in quite a beautiful, quite a colourful manner. Mm. But now she is that fly bouncing around against the wall of this room with the knobless door that she has no way of getting out and is quite literally a fly in the face of something that is as powerful as this Shoggoth Lord. Mm. Pseudopods lift Patty and lower her into the tub. You'll have for bridesmaids pain and dread. For vows you'll jabber blasphemies, Fatface tells her, echoing the letter she receives. His eyes roll jet black. Patty threw the feeble tool of her voice against the massive walls. She kicked as her feet sank into the scorching gelatin, kicked till her shoes dissolved, till her feet and ankles spread nebulae and liquefying flesh within the Shoggoth Lord's greedy substance. Then her kicking slowed, and she sank more deeply in. The end of not only the story, but Patty. Have you visited our Red Bubble store? We have t-shirts, stickers, and all sorts of goodies that you or someone you know might like. Check it out. Just click on the merchandise link on our website, blasphemoustomes.com. Was this the first time both of you had read this? Yeah, definitely the first time for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I quite liked it. I thought it was maybe felt a little bit padded in places, but um, it was an interesting story. I think so often mythos tales try to emulate Lovecraft, but this mm. this doesn't do that. It sets it in a in a well, <laughs> what was a, a modern setting? Well, it could still be pretty much a modern setting. I mean, I'm mm. sure that world probably hasn't changed that much. You know, you. If you were to set it in the world of sort of sex workers now, I'm not sure it'd be necessarily the things that take place wouldn't necessarily have to be that different. So there was sympathy for the main character, um, a sort of sense of realism. On the other hand, on the downside, I think the use of the Shoggoth, uh, you know, all sort of strapped into this body as this kind of businessman, kind of doctor person. I don't know, that seemed a little, um, I'm not sure how to put it, a little silly set against what was quite a a serious tale as well. The, the two don't quite mesh. Mm. 
mean, I sometimes find with horror stories like this that those images of the absurd, and yeah, I think there is something quite absurd about the betrayal of Fat Face and his ilk, can actually be all the more unsettling because there is something initially almost comical about him. That he certainly seems quite harmless at first. Mm. But the fact that this is a very conscious disguise, the fact that this is a predator, perhaps relying on the fact that it looks ridiculous like this, that that helps with its harmlessness, that that bit of absurdity, I, I don't know, for me, I think makes it a bit more creepy. So what did you think, Matt? I really enjoyed it. A few caveats on that, but on the whole, I definitely two thumbs up from me. I mean, I read it in a single sitting without falling asleep, so you can tell it was good <laughs> from that respect. Oh, wow. The only thing that I felt, I agree with you when you say it felt a little padded. When you compare the length of the story versus the setup, the setup definitely has an impact. Mm. It lays that mm. groundwork. It makes Patty feel like a real fleshed out character. Sherry to a lesser degree, but it makes the impact of her fate then more pronounced and actually makes mm. you feel something for it. Compared to the not-quite-blink-and-you-miss-it ending, I mean, it does go from, as Scott said, like a zero to a hundred real quick towards the end. I had to reread the last couple of pages a few times over to kind of get all the details in mm. there, because otherwise it is just, it's there and it's gone. Mm. She's been devoured by Shoggoth and the end. I thought that either that bit could have been potentially a bit longer, but then would have lost a lot of its punch. Yeah. But yeah, the, it makes the beginning section does feel a lot longer than it necessarily needs to be. There's Maybe if you cut out one of the many repetitions of, oh, she goes out and does drugs or alcohol, which comes up maybe one too many times. We got the picture after the second or third time it happened. Maybe that could have helped trim the word count and cut it down a bit. But yeah, it was a little long, but still very effective in what it did. And the moments that it had were very visual, very impactful and packed one hell of a punch yeah no, i liked it mm. and would have made a good episode of cabinet of curiosities guillermo del toro's show yeah maybe if they do a second series they'll they'll adapt it yeah it's interesting you saying about it being too long the story was actually shorter than i remembered i think because i had it in my head that it was published as a book as a chapbook i thought it was cut of novella length and when i did word count on it it's only ten thousand words i mean that's long for a short story but compared to the lovecraft stories that we've talked about here it's say a third of the length of something like the shadow out of time yeah we're not talking about the intrinsic length though are we but that length does play a part in that as far as the pacing is concerned, yeah, I don't know. I didn't really have any complaints about that. It was the character stuff that really drew me in. I really liked both Patty and Sherry as characters. Patty, obviously, we got the most about her. Mm. And she really did come alive as a character. As you said, Matt, I mean, that made us feel all the more for her plight and the horrible ending that she underwent. 
It's the kind of story that I think with less character development would have ended up feeling very trite and obvious because it really is just a classic tale of, um, oh, let's poke around. Oh, here's a monster. Monster eats me. That in itself is, I think, about the most basic mythos tale you can have. Mm-hmm. It's the characterization and the setting details and the writing. I mean, the writing of this is spectacular, I think. The way that you do have these these recurrent motifs or this deep sea imagery that goes through there, the the little references to things like cockroaches that look too fat crawling around and stuff like mm. that, that just sets this general tone of, of wrongness for the area and gives you the impression that somehow the presence of the Shoggoth Lords has perhaps just changed the fabric of reality here a bit or at least changed people's perceptions. That cockroach, definitely, you could see how they would adapt that into an episode of TV very, very quickly, Mm. because that is blatant signposting for a scriptwriter saying, insert flashback to person shot in the head here. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. It also reminded me a little bit of Nathan Ballingrud's The Visible Filth in that respect, because Mm. that is a story that's absolutely crawling with fucking cockroaches. And yeah, as someone who grew up in the tropics, there is nothing that is going to make my skin crawl quite so much as putting a cockroach (laughs) in a story. Full enough, I watched Wounds again the the other day. Oh yeah. I still really like that. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a terrific film. And in Call of Cthulhu, we get Shoggoth Lords inspired by uh, the characters in Fat Face, I think. And mm. also, we get Mr. Shiny, a unique character in Malleus Monstrorum, who is a Shoggoth in human form. With a brain, a big, big brain. <laughs> <laughs> I'd forgotten that the name Shoggoth Lord actually came from the story. I remember that the actual monsters did. But mm. I'd forgotten that they actually called them Shoggoth Lords in this story. That's the sort of classic Call of Cthulhu thing of, here's a monster that someone mentioned in the story, or oh, we've got to give it a name. And it just felt like that kind of name. It even comes from his little love letter that he gave to Patty and mm. uh, Sherry, saying, how should a Shoggoth Lord woo his uh, victim? I mean, friends, etc." <laughs> I had to do, really do a double take then. It's like, okay, you're referring to yourself in almost like the third person here, actually calling yourself Mm. the name of the beastie. I wasn't expecting that. Mm. So what do we know about Mr. Albert Shiny, as he's called in uh, Malleus? We were having a look, and uh, because we were trying to work out where exactly Mr. Shiny appears in. And while uh, Malus Monsorum doesn't state where he's from, I believe we pinned down his initial appearances from At Your Door, what was the Cthulhu Now setting, and rather is now Cthulhu Then, uh, back in the 90s. (laughs) And yeah, he's a um, quite medically orientated individual. He's quite a one with lots of medical settings, so very much echoing Fat Face's kind of appearance as a doctor in many ways, even down to his description of uh, wearing a doctor's smock, that he wears a suit and tie and leather gloves and round gold wire spectacles. He has quite a brain in there. Mm. And he's subtitled Your Friendly Doctor. Yeah, <laughs> which is kind of worrying. <laughs> yeah, that whole idea of how intelligent he is. We were looking before we started recording at Shoggoths in the 
you know, Malice Monstorum and the Call of Cthulhu rulebook. And Shoggoths in Call of Cthulhu themselves, ordinary Shoggoths, aren't actually that intelligent. I mean, the most intelligent Shoggoth is definitely smarter than the least intelligent human. Yeah, they're reasonably intelligent, but not, yeah. But not notably so. But it sounds like, hmm. I mean, Mr. Shiny is exceptional in that respect. Is that the case with Shoggoth Lords in general in the Malleus? Yeah, so Shoggoth Lords get the same starting in as, as humans, hmm. 2d6 plus 6 times 5. So they've kind of got the same, they're a bit stronger, uh, a little bigger physically, not as good on appearance. <laughs> yeah, the other things are kind of in the same kind of range, maybe a little higher averages, but, you know, generally similar. Only Mr. Shiny, he has a whole bunch of languages and mm. skills and attacks and so on. So he's a, he's a pretty tough character, I would say. The two skills that he's got highest, uh, or one of them that's joint highest, I think are an amazing choice and really depict how I would really amp him up in play if I was depicting him as a character oh, yeah. at the game table. <laughs> Charm at 80%, admittedly tied with stealth, also at 80%. So he's a sneaky but charming individual here, although he knows as much in pharmacy as well. But his highest skill... <laughs> choose tasty victim I mean, that's an amazing <laughs> skill that is a good skill at 90 yes. percent mm -hmm. and that does tie in very nicely with fat face the charm aspect as well because mm. that is his camouflage that charm is a weapon there and you know that's what makes him so terrifying he's also pretty terrifying in terms of his sand loss because boy is that a big hit mm. <laughs> What's the sound loss? 1d6 stroke 1d20. Mm, that's the same as the Shoggoth, yeah. But still pretty horrible. <laughs> yeah. And can you punch him? I mean, you can if you want, but he's going to get two attacks per round. He can engulf you. That means, like, you know, subsume you into his body and, like, start digesting you. But he can only do that to one person at a time. But, you know, it could be you. So, mm. so push a friend forward first <laughs> is the basic advice. And also... Armor-wise, a bit like Shogoth, he's only going to take one point of damage from you know, mundane weapons, like be it punches or bullets or whatever. So, uh, you know, best off to run away. The good friends recommend running away. But in game mechanic terms, that final scene where he spills out of his rubber suit, exudes a pseudopod, lifts up Patty and then lowers her into his mass. Mm. So how would that play out in terms of those game mechanics? What attacks does he have that would support that? He's got the engulf. But the initial grab with the pseudopod, I assume, I seem to remember Shoggoths have got that as well, and I assume he does. Kind of. It's it's more that it's described in the flavour text rather than being a mechanical mm, thing right. that says, have a pseudopod that comes out and grabs mm. you. Because it only has fighting human form crush engulf. There's no other attack values listed, so it doesn't really go into the pseudopod angle. Mm. Yeah, that would be a fighting manoeuvre, but I imagine given his build, he's going to get lots of bonus dice there. Or at least you're going to get penalty dice trying to act against it. Yeah, I think to emulate that, you just use a fighting attack and describe mm. it as a, a pseudopod rather than a fist or a hand grabbing you. So, you know, it's a pseudopod because it's basically another arm, isn't it? So, And then the slow digestion. Mm. 
He can do it pretty quick too, because he can do it. And he can do two attacks in the round. So exactly, mm. yeah, and he can roll. <laughs> Is there anything specifically that's given in the write-up about uh, Shoggoth Lords about their disguise abilities, about their abilities to present themselves as humans? Other than they find it difficult for long periods of time, that hmm. it requires great concentration to remain in human form. If they're caught off guard or distracted and such, they could melt, which is quite a nice touch. Hmm. You go up behind one and go, boo! And all of a sudden, <laughs> it falls apart on the floor and then devours you. It's like a more spectacular form of shitting yourself. <laughs> That's interesting then. So... In Call of Cthulhu, it's a bit different from what we see in the story, in that in the story, the Shoggoth Lords are very much relying on orthopedic devices and rubber suits and so on to save them the effort of trying to maintain those forms. Well, we have reference to that in, in Mr. Shiny. Right. Yeah, I can see then if you've got just Shoggoth Lords who are doing it through sheer willpower, that's going to be a lot less successful. Mm. Not that the way they're portrayed in Fat Face is amazingly successful in terms of trying to appear unobtrusive. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash good friends of Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you very much to you for listening to the podcast. Thank you very much to anyone who has ever backed us. And we have a number of new people to thank, probably not through the medium of creepy poetry. Starting off with a thanks to Michael Dykes. And thank you much to Matthew Landrum. Great first name there, mate. Aha, uh-huh. and thank you very much to our good friend Sue Savage. And thanks to James Smith. And thank you very much also to Jacob King. And thank you very much to Zachary Burr. And thanks to Crazy Space. And thank you very much as well to Nicholas Rodriguez. And special thanks uh, to Heather Poirier, who has gone up to the Talk to the Hand Golanac level. All right, well, that's another episode done. It's uh, been Michael Shea's Fat Face. That's a story that's been on my radar for a long time, so I'm pleased to have read it, and uh, I think we all three recommend it. Yeah. Check it out. And speaking of recommendations, if you are enjoying the podcast, then we would love it if you let people know whether this means leaving a review somewhere where reviews can be found, letting people with similar interests know on social media, or, well, just perhaps going down to your local hydrotherapy clinic and leaving a note under someone's door. Whatever it is, we would be very grateful. You beat me to it. I was going to use the same thing. Put it on the notice board down at your pet refuge or clinic. Yeah. Okay, well, you've been listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes.com. Mm-hmm.